Good morning. As you open your Bible or look on the screen and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, I will be reading in Southern. <laughs> About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not to be dependent on anyone. Amen. You know, Melissa, if you're really reading in Southern, you would have said y'all in there because that's what it is in the Greek. So it's true, second person plural. The Northerners, the Yankees are missing out. Hey, good morning, church family. How's everyone doing? You guys good? It's good to see you. If you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here uh, for a few more Sundays. And uh, as we're kind of in this season of transition in my family, I just going to let you in a little, a little behind the scenes here. Um, probably shouldn't, but I'm going to. Two nights ago, I had a dream. And uh, it's okay, Erin Don't say, oh, geez. Uh, two nights ago, I had a dream. And actually, you know, sometimes you have a dream, and I really do believe that sometimes, you know, God is speaking to us through dreams. Other times you have a dream, like, that might have been the enemy just, like, trying to mess with me or bring fears. There's other times, like, nope, that was just my own brain working some things out in the middle of the night. So I had a dream that we were gathering together like this for a worship service. Uh, in my dream, Pastor John was leading us in song, and I was supposed to be leading alongside of him. I was supposed to be playing, and they started without me. And I come running in, and my guitar was missing a string and not plugged in. And so I went back in the closet there, and I was like trying to get a cable. And I was like, Blake, Blake, help me find a cord. And I, he found me a cord, and it was like six inches long. And I was like, ah. And so like, it was one of those kind of futility dreams. Like everything was going wrong, and the light over there was like flickering, and the projector went out and everything. And then I got up to preach, and I was like, there was 10 minutes left. I'm like, I've got 10 minutes left? How am I supposed to? John's like, you can do it. And I was like, OK, fine. So then we're singing. But the best part of the dream, the best part of the dream was as we're singing, <laughs> John sets his guitar down and jumps out the window and tackles a bad guy that was trying to break into the church. So even in my dreams, John, you're a hero. Good job. So I'd say this worship service is going really well. Uh, uh, Anyways, I love being here with you. I love singing. I love getting to pray over our graduating seniors. I love getting to open up the Word of God, and we are going to tackle a a short but really jam-packed four verses here in chapter four. And so I would invite you to just bring your heart before the Lord, and especially today as we're talking about this idea of a quiet life of love, and you heard throughout our songs and our liturgy talking about labors and works, many of you may feel tired And I hope and I pray today that you will be refreshed and energized by the labor of the Lord Jesus on your behalf. So let's go before the Lord in prayer right now, if you would. God, we do. We bring our our weary hearts before you. God, many of us feel like there's too much to do and not enough time to do it. Or many of us feel exhausted and worn out by the thorns and the thistles that we encounter in our work and our labors on this side of the Garden of Eden. And Lord, we believe that you have good news for us today. We believe that you have love for us today. And I ask and I pray that you'd help me to communicate that 
not by my own might or efforts or by my own great articulate words, but Lord, just by your powerful grace and by the presence, God, of your Holy Spirit here with us. We give this time to you. Would you grow us and shape us to know the love of Christ Jesus that we might be empowered for the works that we have ahead of us because of him and for his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. So uh, some of you know this. In, in the month of May, there's always one week out of the month of May where I am on like full-time husband duty. Because the way that it works out every single year within about a, well, like the tightest grouping is like six days. At the most, it's like 11 or 12 days. We have in May Mother's Day, my wife's birthday, and our anniversary. Why we got married three days after her birthday, I don't know. We were children. I don't know. But it's like, it's this really tight grouping where every single year in mid-May, I am broke. So uh, now, if any of you know my wife, you know that, the, you know, um, actually, let me back up real quick. You guys ever heard of this thing like the five love languages? I don't fully subscribe to it, but there's some good ideas there. Like different people give and receive love in different ways. And, and if you know my wife, you know that this idea of like works of service is one of those, like, when I told her what passage I was preaching on, she went, yeah, I love that passage. Because she's a works of service sort of a gal, like acts of service and acts of, of love. And it made me think about, you know, when, whenever Mother's Day is coming around, I was thinking back to like some of the email marketing that I get. It's like, show her you love her. Buy these, you know, pet, Clothes. I'm like, that is not what she wants for Mother's Day or for her birthday. Or show her you, you know, it's Mother's Day coming up. Show her you care for her. I was like, this is a chainsaw? Really? That's how you show love me. But the, my favorite is whenever you like are on TV, you see like those commercials where it's like, show her you love her. And then it's like you drive up with a brand new Lexus with a bow on it or something like that. I'm like, that would not communicate love to my wife. That would communicate debt to my wife. And it would communicate difficulties in our marriage for the next few years till we pay it off, right? So, so, Here's the deal, though. In my time and experience as a pastor, sometimes we are, we are drawn to, and maybe specifically men, we're drawn to this idea of showing and expressing love through these grandiose acts of service. I do very specifically remember one time having a pastoral marriage counseling session where the wife was expressing, man, I've just not felt loved, I've not felt cared for, and the husband's plan was to suggest a trip to Mexico. It's like, man, she's like, that's just not... Like, you can, I'll go to Mexico. You can stay behind. But it was like this idea of these grand gestures are going to fix everything when really what was being asked for was these day in, day out, loving, kind acts of service that actually do a lot more to genuinely communicate love. Can I get an amen from anybody on this? Okay. Now, when we come to the pages of the New Testament, specifically the writings of Paul, Paul has a definition of love that is extremely well known. Any of you who have spent any time around the church world, and actually for many people who aren't even followers of Jesus, are familiar with Paul's definition of love from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, Let me know if you've heard this before, where he says love is patient, love is kind, love uh, does not envy, it's not boastful or arrogant, love is not rude, like pushing to the front of the line, it's not self-seeking, right? Love is not irritable, Ooh, how many of you feel convicted before you've had your two or three cups of coffee in the morning, right? Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but actually rejoices in the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So that list is very well known. How many of you, raise your hand, how many of you have heard that before? You've, you've seen that list before, right? And it's, it's not these grand gestures. It's more of attitudes of the heart and postures of the heart that say day in and day out, I care for you, I love you, you matter to me. Now, if that is Paul's most well-known definition of love, I would like to submit to you for second place, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, our passage that we're in today. And by the way, I should say, 1 Corinthians 13 is not this exhaustive list. That's not the only way to, to define what love is. But it's Paul saying, hey, this is what it looks like. Well, add to it. Let's add to this picture 1 Thessalonians 4. Go with me. If you've got your Bibles, read along. Verse 9. Now, about brotherly love. Brotherly love. This is what we're talking about today. By the way, you remember that beginning in chapter 4, Paul and Silas and Timothy, who are co-writing this letter, they've, they've wrapped up their gospel foundations. They've wrapped up all of the, hey, here's what God has done for us. And now they've kind of turned the page into practical instructions. Last week, we talked about uh, sexual ethics that are honoring to God. And now he says, hey, now another topic about brotherly love. Paul writes, you don't even need me to write to you. And then he just continues to write to them about it. Uh, I like that. It's a good parenting technique, by the way. Parents, you look at your kids like, well, they you don't need me to remind you to not leave your shoes on the dinner table. You know that. You already know that, right? You don't need me to write this to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you all are doing this towards all the brothers and the sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. So here, Paul and Silas are giving a word of encouragement. And it's a word of encouragement about a specific type of love, this brotherly love. Some of you may know that, you know, in our English language, we have the word love. We just have one word for love. But in Greek, in the Koine New Testament Greek, the commoner Greek, there were at least four different words that could be used to express the idea of love. There's the word agape. Some of you may have heard this word of agape. It's kind of the most commonly used word for love in the New Testament. There's a word uh, eros, which often refers more to like romantic type of love between a husband and a wife. That's used in the New Testament. There's a word storge, which is uh, maybe a little bit more like affection. It's kind of like that feelings of warmth. Like, oh, I just love, you know, like when you see like a cute kitten or something like that. Here, does anyone want to guess what the Greek word is that is being used for brotherly love? Yeah, good job. Phileo, or specifically Philadelphia, the love between brothers. It's actually why the city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. You got it. Good job. You were paying attention in fifth grade history class. Good job. Side note, we actually took our family a few years ago through Philadelphia, and um, I don't have any there's no brothers in our family. It's all girls. The sisterly love was uh, low. We were in Philadelphia. It was like 95 degrees, and I made the kids all stand in line to see the Liberty Bell. And they were like, Dad, it is hot. We don't have to care about this. It's the summer. We have to care about this kind of stuff September through you know, June when school's in session. Can we please go get back in the car? I'm like, you're going to love this history, and you're going to someday, when you're a grown-up, you're going to thank your lucky star. that you're. Dead. I'm still waiting, but I'm, I, I believe in myself. Anyways, the idea here about brotherly love, Gordon Fee, who's a biblical scholar, he writes this. He says, Philadelphia is a word that was used throughout the Greco-Roman world for love between actual siblings. But in this, its first appearance in the New Testament, it has already assumed the familial relationship 
that God's newly formed people had with each other because of their common relationship to God through Christ. How many of you know that because of Jesus, we are made into a family? How many of you know that? See, the, 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 the storyline of redemptive history, you could actually put it into the context of a family. That when God created the heavens and the earth, he had a spiritual family. That it's called the sons of God, the heavenly host. But that God desired an earthly family to rule and to reign in partnership with him, in relationship with him as sons and daughters here on earth. And that God enjoyed close communion and close relationship with the man and the woman. And this is a family that, that he, he walks with and he talks with and he loves. And how many of you know that one of the very first things that happens after sin enters into God's good creation is the fracturing of the family. What is it that happens immediately after the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter three? What happens in Genesis chapter four? Do any of you know? Cain and Abel, a brother literally murdering his brother. Fratricide. And the storyline of human history is sadly one of division and enmity and strife and violence between all sorts of people groups on planet Earth, different languages, different ethnicities, different skin colors. It is a broken portrait of the oneness as humans that we're supposed to share. We are meant to be one family. We are meant to be the family of God. And sadly, we divide and we hate, and we separate, and we kill because of skin color, because of nationality, and because of language. But at the right time, God sent his son, born of Mary, born as Jesus of Nazareth, the one who came to extend a welcome invitation to all of the people under the sun. And he lived a perfect life of love. He lived a perfect life, no hate, no fratricide. In fact, the Bible speaks of Jesus as our big brother, the one who is the the firstborn son. And through his perfect life, through his death on the cross, and through his glorious and victorious resurrection, well, now we've all been made sons and daughters of the Most High God through the work of our big brother, Jesus Christ. Praise God. This is good news, friends. And now, God's spirit is at work in us to root out all of that fratricide, all of that hatred, all of that enmity. He's working on us to unify us and bring us closer and closer and closer together until the day when the trumpet sounds and the sky cracks open and we see Jesus face to face and we live as God's family for all of eternity. How many of you long for that day? And until that day, he's working on us to put more and more Philadelphia Philadelphia into our hearts and into our lives so that we love each other as a church community until that day. Now, Paul is saying and Silas is saying, hey, here's what this is going to look like. Here's what this Philadelphia brotherly love community of faith, here's what it's going to look like. Read with me, picking back up in verse 10. He says, we encourage you, brothers and sisters, you've already been loving, we encourage you to do this even more. And here it is, three things. Seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands as we commanded you 
so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent upon anyone. Did you catch that? Quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands. Now, I have two objections to this passage. And some of you are saying, Aaron, you're a pastor. How are you objecting to the Bible? You object to the Bible too. You're a sinner. The Bible rubs us all in sorts of wrong ways. You got to just admit it. You got to talk about it, okay? Number one, here's, here's why this passage rubs me the wrong way. First of all, I have been raised in a culture and in a time in American history where I have been encouraged by both the Disney Corporation and NASA to be all that I can be, to be a world changer, to be a rock star, to be an influencer. When I was 11 years old, I was convinced I was going to play in the NBA. And now I'm still convinced I'm going to play in the NBA. They don't know what they're missing out on me. me. I could bite some people, okay? Like, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like, there's this cultural assumption to get out there and, and be big and be loud and make a difference. And actually, even in the church world that I was raised in, I remember in college, college age, there was a song that we would sing pretty regularly. The song, the chorus of the song said, I'm going to be a history maker. Anybody remember that song? Yeah. Now, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) And B, most people who make history do so for bad reasons, okay? That's a side point. But when you look at a verse like this, like that kind of runs counter- to my own inclinations for the the culture I've lived in, where it's like, no, I'm supposed to make noise and be heard and have a platform and make a difference. And actually, I have a second objection. You ready for my second objection? It's Paul himself. Really, man? A quiet life? Do you remember the riots in Ephesus? Do you remember the riots in Thessalonica when you went there? Like, really, Paul? You? (laughs) Really? You're going to tell us to work quietly and keep to yourself? And actually... If the Apostle Paul were here to defend himself, I think he would lean and say, yeah. Yeah, I caused a few riots by accident. (laughs) But do you remember what he said back in chapter 2? In 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, he said, you remember our labor and our hardship? Brothers and sisters, we worked night and day. Literally, he's talking about working with his hands, a, a tent maker, a leather worker, actually doing diligent, quiet, hard work night and day, so that we would not burden any of you. Instead, we preached God's gospel to you. So yeah, he would say, it's their fault that the riot started. I was just trying to tell people about Jesus, but I did this. I worked quietly. I worked hard with my hands so that I would have an opportunity to preach Jesus and make disciples. What I'm trying to say, the big idea that I'm trying to say to you today and the big idea from this passage is simply this. Quiet, dignified, hard work is a beautiful way to love others like Jesus. Quiet, dignified, hard work needs to be added to your definition of what love looks like, particularly when it comes to the family of God. Now, there's three actions that Paul says specifically that this looks like, okay? Action number one is lead a quiet life. Now, this is for the noisy among us, okay? Leading a quiet life. Now, remember, this church faces near-constant opposition, social pressure, and even uh, government persecution, So when Paul says to lead a quiet life, what he's saying is, hey, don't cause any undue trouble for yourselves. 
The truth about Jesus is already going to cause enough trouble. You don't need to make it harder on yourselves. This is a, like, keep your head down, do your work, don't cause a ruckus sort of instruction. Now, how many of you know that we live in a world, we live in a culture that encourages literally the exact opposite? We live in a world that encourages platforming and noise. And actually, even more than that, we live in a culture that encourages speaking out on anything and everything. Have you ever heard the phrase, silence is violence? Have you heard that? Have you ever heard the, you, ever, you know, you, some news, something newsworthy happens and you go on social media and people are like, wow, I guess we're just not talking about X, Y, and Z sort of a thing. My personal favorite is when people are like, we really need to have a conversation about X, Y, and Z. And what they mean is, you need to listen to me rant about this, right? We are encouraged, no, we're even pressured to have an opinion and to speak out on anything and everything. I, I don't know everything. Do you? I don't know what the deep root causes are in the civil war in Ethiopia right now, and the Tigray people and Eritrea and all that, all I know is that one of my daughters has a really close friend who's Ethiopian, and that, like, I just pray that the Lord would intervene. I can't, I can't speak intelligently to that. I don't fully understand the situation of the, the war between Russia and Ukraine. I, I just pray that the Lord would bring peace. I don't know what a debt ceiling is. I just know we're not supposed to do it or have it or somewhere supposed to, I don't know. I, I can't speak intelligently to all of those things. But you know what I can? I can, I can work hard and keep my head down and seek to act in a loving way towards those around me. Now listen, um, this doesn't mean to just never speak up or never say anything, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about the Apostle Paul who said, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. And this is a stumbling block both for Jewish people and for Gentile people. This is the same letter where just last week, Paul wrote very clearly and very uh, boldly about what sexual ethics look like for followers of Jesus. So we're not talking about becoming, you know, jellyfish with no backbone, right? But what we're talking about is the tone with which it's, crea- with which it's communicated, I heard a quote recently from a pastor who lived in a different part of the country where he said, our culture is so loud, we've got to be louder. Really? Um, I had a conversation one time. You go down to the stadiums, you go to a Husky game or a Mariners game, you go down to a stadium and there's people there and they've usually got a sign and they've usually got a bullhorn and they're shouting things. And I tried to listen to it, and I come, come closer, and I listen, listen carefully. And um, I would say that 95-plus percent of what they're saying, I wholeheartedly agree with. Jesus is going to return. You need to repent of your sins. You need to receive his forgiveness. The Bible says in X, Y, and Z, I'm listening, I'm like, yeah, I, I agree with all of these things. The problem is the tone with which it's delivered and actually, on one hand, I mean literally the tone. Have you ever heard a bullhorn? It hurts your ears. That does not make the gospel of Jesus Christ pleasant. It is literally painful to my eardrums. 
And one time a few years ago, I struck up a conversation with a guy and I said, hey, just out of curiosity, what's your success rate? How many people have you like, not just like led to the Lord, but like actually discipled, brought to a place of Christian maturity and discipleship? And he wouldn't answer my question. Now, on the one hand, I'll commend the boldness. Good job being bold. I agree with a lot of the content. But it fails the quiet life instruction that Paul gives to us. It's not a matter of substance, but of tone. It's not what's being said, but how it's being said and how the life is being lived, okay? Loving action number one, lead a quiet life. This is for the noisy. Number two, for the nosy, Paul says, mind your own business, okay? This is for the noisy and the nosy. This is where we have to talk about gossip. Now, back in the olden days, uh, the 90s, uh, you would have to, yeah, <laughs> get kids graduating from high school. We're, we're getting old, Jamie. It's fine. <laughs> the, 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 you have like gossip columns or gossip magazines. And as, you know, time went on, then we have like gossip uh, TV shows, right? TMZ. Now, it's literally just social media. Raise your hands, you sinful people who have ever Facebook stalked someone. Raise your hand, okay? Mm, snooping around, trying to find, come on. In the church world, sometimes we disguise it as prayer requests. Am I, am I pushing buttons yet? Oh, did, can you tell me what's going on with so-and-so? I really just want to be praying for them. Liar! <laughs> Okay, um, there is a genuine place for transparency, for knowing what's going on in the lives of other people, for sharing and carrying one another's burdens. Amen? I would just submit to you that we live in such a gossip-drenched culture that all of our needles are probably not calibrated correctly. There's probably a lot of information that you and I just don't need to know. And actually, I would even go so far as to say that, like, you know, celebrity gossip and uh, political behind-the-scenes gossip. There's just so much of that that takes up so much of our mental and emotional energy, and it does nothing profitable for us living as disciples, members of the kingdom of God. Loving action number one, lead a quiet life. You hear that, noisy? Loving action number two is for the nosy, mind your own business. Loving action number three is for the nerds, work with your hands. We got the noisy, the nosy, and the nerdy. And I, yes, I am pretty proud of that one, okay? Here's what I mean by the nerds, okay? So many people in this church and in our neck of the woods work with the life of the mind. No, typing on a keyboard is not the working with your hands that is being instructed, right? Engineers, designers, marketers, tech, heck, even me. What do I do? I read books and I deliver a talk about a 2,000-year-old nerd stuff, right? It's nerd, 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 nerd stuff. Now, there's nothing wrong with nerd stuff. Paul himself was a theologian, a speaker, a philosopher, a teacher, right? But what Paul here is talking about is he's referencing back to a time in the Garden of Eden where the man and the woman were created and they were given this instruction to do what? To work in the garden, and there's two things that are really important about that. Number one, that instruction was given before the fall of man. Work is not a result of the fall. 
Now our work has been affected by the fall. There's thorns and thistles, but work itself is a good thing. Can I get an amen from anyone in the church? Work is a good thing. And maybe if you've had that moment where like you did a really good hard day work and you come in, you're like, I just feel so fulfilled. I feel like I made a difference. I feel like that was really good. Now, obviously we have those days where it doesn't feel that way, but work itself is a good thing. And specifically, this idea of working with your hands. Adam and Eve in the garden. There's a gardening. There's a connection with nature. After Jesus' resurrection, I always love that, that verse in John where it says that Mary thought that Jesus was the gardener. There's like this restoration to a connection with nature that you and I were meant to have. You remember last week I, I talked about how in our, in our quest to live a, a sexually pure life, to honor God, some of us need to do difficult things. And actually, I think that working with our hands is some of that difficult things that we need to do. Whether or not you're an, you know, an engineer, a graphic designer, an artist, you work more in the life of the mind, sometimes you just need to try to build a fence. Sometimes you need to try to repair your dishwasher on your own instead of calling someone to do it. Sometimes you just need to climb up the power line and try to replace a transformer yourself. No, don't actually do that. I'm just kidding. Right? Brandon's like, do not do that. <laughs> uh, right? I had a, I had a moment uh, recently where just some real stress and anxiety and some things kind of hit me and I'm just, I'm really struggling and kind of had this moment. I'm like, I need to pray. But I also remember that one of the loving church members dropped off a bunch of firewood rounds that needed to be split. And so I went in the backyard and I just split firewood for a while to the glory of God. And after a little while, my wife came out and said, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm just struggling, but I'm just going to keep splitting logs for a while. And honestly, it was super therapeutic. And God met me in that place. And I was able to actually pray. Had a conversation with a guy. Uh, he was at the first service, total nerd. And uh, he, you know, works with his mind. And he was talking about how he's just been spending this time on his property, like just weeding and weeding and weeding and weeding and weeding. It's like, man, sometimes maybe the most spiritually enriching thing that you could do is just go outside and start weeding your lawn. Talk to God about his creation that he made. And then see if you're not strengthened for your nerd work when you go back on Monday morning, right? The noisy, the nosy, and the nerdy. Keep quiet. Keep to yourself. Work with your hands. Now, Paul and Silas say that if we do these things, there's going to be a couple of results that will happen. Two results specifically. Number one, well, I'm going to just read this passage. Go back to verse 11. He says, if you do these things that we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Two results. The reputation with outsiders and not being dependent on anyone. I'll go in reverse order. The dependent on anyone. What an amazing thought. What an amazing thought. Now, listen, hear me, hear me loud and clear. Are there times in our lives where we really do need to depend on others? Are there verses in the Bible that talk about sharing one another's burdens? This is not a trick question. Yes. But the aim and the goal for each of us is to, as much as possible, have our lives be in such a place where we are able to offer out of our overflow and out of our extra, whether that's out of our extra money, our extra time, our extra energy, our extra care and love to those who are in a place of need. Some of you are really bad at asking for help. Some of you are terrible at asking for help. You just need to ignore this verse for a moment here, okay? You need to learn how to let your guard down and let other people help you and serve you. But what Paul is saying here is we're, we're trying to build a community where people aren't taking advantage of each other. People are able to share 
people able to contribute. Friends, I have been so incredibly blessed so many times just as a pastor getting to hear the stories about, oh, so-and-so ended up in the hospital and these people drove them down there for their doctor's appointment. Oh, so-and-so got really, really sick and man, 42 people from the church brought meals for the month and oh, so-and-so just had to move and people showed up and helped. I love hearing those stories. Let's do that and even more going forward, Amen. But look at this first result that, that, that Paul says is going to happen. If you do these things, if you lead the quiet life of love and, and, and you keep to your own business and you work with your hands, it says you're going to behave properly in the presence of outsiders. And that phrase there in the Greek is a, a little bit challenging to translate. The, the ESV, this is the CSB, the ESV says so that you will walk properly before outsiders. The New English translation, which is a little more technical, says uh, live a decent life before outsiders. The New Living translation says that people who are not believers will respect the way that you live. And the NIV, or the nearly inspired version, just kidding, says uh, your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. There's this idea of people from the outside world are going to see the way that you're living your life and they're going to want in. And you think, wait a minute, Paul, I thought we were talking about, you know, Philadelphia, the the brotherly love. And what Paul is saying is, yeah, that brotherly love, that family love, that sisters and brothers and the family of God is going to be so compelling that even people on the outside who don't think the same way, don't believe the same way, maybe haven't even decided yet that they want to be a part of this family of God, they're still going to respect you. And they're going to want something that you have. I have seen this time and time and time again in my life where somebody said, man, I don't, I don't believe exactly what you believe, but man, that whole relationship and community thing that you guys got going on is pretty valuable. I've even heard people talking about like, well, I just want to go to, go to church. Um, somebody, a non-Christian person I know said, I just want to go to church just so my kids can like get around other people and have that good support structure. Last year, Aaron Lynn and I were out on a date it was an afternoon kind of daytime date. And um, we were sitting out like in a patio area and our conversation had kind of died off. And so I started eavesdropping on the people next to us. I wasn't being nosy. I was just, they were just talking loud. I couldn't help it, okay? Um, but we're listening. You remember this conversation? And it was a group of people and they were talking about one couple like, well, yeah, I was raised Catholic. But we don't really practice anymore. And, but we did put our, our, our kids in a Catholic school and kind of that relationship sort of thing. And then their conversation kind of lulled off. And the lady goes, you know what I really miss? I miss the potlucks. <laughs> like, and all the Baptists in the room were like, hallelujah, right? Like, <laughs> missional evangelistic potlucking for Jesus, right? But the idea of, there was just something about this, like, idea of belonging to a family that would get together and literally share a pot of spaghetti. That was attractive to someone. I, like, I, don't, I don't believe, I don't really follow, I don't really practice anymore, but man, that, that family, community of faith thing is attractive to people. If we live the kind of quiet life of love that is put forward in these verses, there's an evangelistic aspect to it. I've never, honestly, I've never known anyone to really follow Jesus and really grow as a disciple because they got shouted into it and kind of arm twisted into it. I've known a lot of people who became followers of Jesus and grew as a lifetime disciple and follower of Jesus because they were loved by the family of God. Now, I want to begin to wrap up. Finally, you know what that means? Nothing. 
in my dream, John only gave me 10 minutes to preach, so I'm taking that as extra bonus time here. So here's what I want us to, here's where I want us to land on because all this talk about the work that we're going to do and how we're going to work hard, I want you to know the good news about this is that it's not up to you. It's not all on you. This work that we're called to do actually comes from the Lord Jesus himself. In his earthly life and ministry, Jesus' love was demonstrated in his hard work for our salvation. Jesus was quiet. Jesus fulfilled this commandment perfectly. Think about how many times Jesus did something radical, like healed someone or did some miraculous thing. But then what would Jesus say to that person? Shh, keep it, hey, don't, don't tell anybody. Did they ever listen? No, they always went and told someone. But, but Jesus, in his earthly life and ministry, was saying, I'm going to lead this kind of quiet life of love. Yes, I'm doing these powerful acts and miracles from the Lord God, but it's not to, to like make some splashy show. It's to literally demonstrate love. Jesus did that perfectly. And actually, all the way to the cross, the prophet Isaiah says, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus quietly bled on the cross so that you and I might be forgiven. And Jesus kept to himself. He didn't, he didn't butt in on other people's affairs. He didn't dive into Roman politics and he didn't get into whatever the Sadducees were saying or whatever the Essenes were saying. He said, I stay focused. I only do that which I see my father doing. I am about my father's business. He wasn't nosy and distracted. He stayed focused on the mission of rescuing, redeeming us. And Jesus worked with his hands. For the first 30 years of his life, as a, as a laborer, as a carpenter, as someone who quietly behind the scenes worked with his hands, learning the Torah, communing with his father, prepared and ready so that when the spirit said, now is the time to start the mission, those hands could begin healing the sick and in feeding the hungry and embracing the unlovable. And those hands stretched out on a cross and those hands had nails driven through them so that you and I could be forgiven for our hearts of lovelessness. Friends, Jesus did this all perfectly on our behalf. And when we are called to lead this quiet life of working hard and loving others, it is not up to you. This is not a matter of clenching your fists a little tighter and gritting your teeth a little bit harder and straightening up your shoulders a little bit more. It is more about communing with the Lord God and letting him love the world through you. Because I don't know about you, I can't do it on my own strength. I get tired. Anybody get tired? Anybody try to work hard and then you just kind of hit a wall and you run out of strength? Anybody ever get frustrated with the noisiness of the world and you, you get baited into, you know, fighting fire with fire and being noisy? Anyone here been noisy? Anyone here ever posted something online you shouldn't have posted? Anyone here ever popped off and responded to somebody the way you should? How, how many of you have ever gotten frustrated with people in the church? Your own brothers and sisters. This is a church, be honest. How many of you... I, I have gotten frustrated. Some of you in this very room. Oh, I know. Me, yes. 
it's all up to me to do this, if, if it's all up to me, I can't do it. I have failed every single day of my life. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is at work in us to change us and to shape us. And he is at work through us to share his love with the world. This is good news because it frees us from trying to work to earn anything. It frees us to surrender more to his love and to let him work through us. So this looks a lot like making sure you're taking time quietly with the Lord. This looks a lot like reminding yourself, preaching the gospel to yourself. Hey, the work is finished. He has done it on my behalf. The weight's not on you. The pressure's not on you. You're free now to live this quiet life of love. We need to have a lot of conversations in our small groups and in our families. What does it look like to live this kind of life in your family? quietly loving, serving, working hard? What does it look like to live this out in your workplace? Especially for those of you that work, you know, in a secular environment and you're around people that don't believe the same as you. What does it look like to quietly work with your hands, to stay out of other people's business? What does that look like for you? What does it look like in our church community? One of the things I've been praying and asking for today is that some of you, I mean, there are so many people in this church community that serve and contribute in so many ways, but there are some of you that I've been praying this week that you would experience the loving conviction of the Lord because you're not really contributing in a, in a tangible, practical, you know, work with your hands sort of way into the life and community of the church. There's no shame or condemnation, but there is a call from the Lord Jesus. Where's the Philadelphia? Where's the love for the brothers and the sisters to work and to serve each other? But remember, it's not up to you. This is not a grit your teeth and clench your fists harder. It's a surrender to the love that the Lord has already given to us and the work that he's already done on our behalf. And even now, as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, we eat and we drink the body and blood of Christ. May it be a reminder for us that he is actually working the inside out in us and through us for his glory and for the good of the world. Will you pray with me? Lord, we pray. We pray right now that we would, in any way that we are attempting to earn your love or prove ourselves to you through our hard work, Lord, I pray that we would repent of that and we would rest in and trust in your perfect work on our behalf. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would seek to be obedient to what you call us to, to to live the quiet life, to mind our own affairs, to work with our hands. And Lord, we pray that we would experience your love and that we would be able to express that love to the watching world. And Lord Jesus, now as we come to the table, the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, would you empower us for the work that you want to accomplish through us, for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.